Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Parjat Despande is the leading integrative high-risk pregnancy specialist, somatic trauma professional who guides women so they can reduce their risk of preterm birth. When we talk about fertility trauma, we'll split the phrase up into two. Trauma being the experience of being in a threatening situation where you experienced a threat of any kind and then being unable to come out of that into safety for any number of reasons. That's what traumatic stress is. It's stored survival stress that's frozen and stuck in the body. Fertility trauma then is when that event happens on the journey to trying to conceive. And that means that can happen even if you're trying naturally, if you're doing IVF, if you are going through adoption, through a surrogacy journey, the events or those details don't actually matter. That's done at a subconscious, unconscious, non-verbal level. So it's not like we're choosing it was experienced as threatening, it's so important to talk about trauma not as a mental health issue, mm-hmm. and, but a whole health issue because it is showing up in different ways. And oftentimes what we find is even after something, let's say the fertility trauma happens somewhere along the IVF journey, then mm-hmm. it doesn't stop because IVF is over. It doesn't mm-hmm. stop because you're pregnant or because baby has come home. It's going to come out in different ways in your body because it is stored survival stress that has still had nowhere to go to be released from the body. It's still stuck there. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. A lot of my passion for integrative medicine comes from the important role that the mind-body connection plays in the treatment of patients. And on today's podcast, I'm very excited to be speaking with my next guest, Parijat Dashpande, who also is passionate about the importance of the mind-body connection for those dealing with infertility and high-risk pregnancies. Parijat Dashpande is the leading integrative high-risk pregnancy specialist, somatic trauma professional and speaker, and author who guides women to improve their pregnancy complications so they can reduce their risk of preterm birth. Her unique neurobiological approach has served hundreds of women to manage pregnancy complications and reclaim a safety and trust in their bodies that they thought had eroded forever. Parijat is the author of the best-selling book, Pregnancy Brain, A Mind-Body Approach to Stress Management During a High-Risk Pregnancy. She's also the host of the popular podcast, Delivering Miracles, that discusses the real, raw side of family building, including infertility, loss, high-risk pregnancy, bed rest, prematurity, and healing once baby comes home. Welcome, Parijat. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I love all the things you do. You know, I mentioned your book in the intro, and I really recommend anyone who has not picked that up, who is on the fertility journey, to give that a read because I think 
honestly, a lot of your work is really eye-opening for me because although I have an integrative medicine background now, I started training in conventional medicine. And so a lot of this idea of mind-body is unfortunately kind of foreign, which seems kind of strange. Like, I don't know how we thought that the mind and body should be separate, like as if our brain is not connected to the things we're doing and we shouldn't be impacted by what's going on with us. So I really like where have you gone with your work in terms of understanding something that seems very obvious, but yet so distant to the conversation in medicine and so many doctors really take for granted? How did you become passionate about this work that you do? It's interesting. I also came from a conventionally trained background and it was having to become the patient that is what really took me into this world, honestly. Um, kind of reversing back a little bit as when I was younger, I'd always wanted to be an OBGYN when I grew up. My best mm -hmm. friend's dad was an OBGYN. I said, oh, I love this. I don't know what I thought it was at that age, but something about it sounded wonderful. And then kind of my profession took a different detour. I went through developmental psychology and then clinical psychology and got trained in the kind of traditional model of clinical psychology. And then Early on in our marriage, we knew that we needed to start trying to conceive earlier than we had anticipated for health reasons. And it was after going through fertility treatment and then experiencing a ruptured ectopic, which really shook us because we didn't realize that trying to conceive and start a family could be dangerous. It just mm -hmm. never crossed our mind. It was never something we even knew would happen. And so that kind of started planting a seed of, wow, this experience is a lot more complicated than I was at all anticipating. And then jumping into IVF and starting that process and then developing pregnancy complications, multiple complications, some of which I talk about in, in the book Pregnancy Brain, is really what inspired me because I remember there was a moment somewhere around like 14, 15 weeks where I'd been on modified activity restrictions at home which I was mm -hmm. not very good at because I loved being busy. And now suddenly I'm isolated at home yeah. and I'm terrified of losing another baby. And I could feel my anxiety rising and I mm -hmm. could tell that it's impacting my body. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I walked into the office of somebody like me mm -hmm. who was trained like I was, I knew what they would say because it's what I would have said. And mm -hmm. now as the patient, I knew that's not at all what I needed. And never more did that become apparent then when I landed in the hospital at 22 weeks and four days, I was three centimeters dilated. Wow. Everybody was preparing us for this is mm. not going to go well. They were doing their best to stay optimistic, but they had to tell us the truth. They had to give us the data that they knew, the statistics that they knew. If the baby was mm -hmm. born, what would it be like and all of that? And I remember telling them, it was a Friday morning, early morning, and I told them, what if you give me everything? Right? I consent to all medical interventions of all kinds. Help me. But what if I tried something else too? What if I tried to help myself in a way that nobody's really talking to me about mm -hmm. to help me stay pregnant? And they're like, sure, try. You know, it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I know they didn't believe me because they didn't know. Right? It wasn't ill intent by any means. They just didn't know. And I'm a mother at the end of my rope going, I'm willing to try absolutely anything at this point because I don't want to lose this child. You could see on the monitor when I could modulate my body, the contraction stopped. Nothing else was changing other than what I was doing mm -hmm. for my body. 
And then when I got scared, when I felt anxious, when I was anticipating the neonatologist walking in, the contractions picked mm -hmm. right back up. And then when mm -hmm. I went back into doing what I thought I knew my body needed, the contraction stopped. And in doing that, they had predicted I would stay pregnant for 72 hours. I stayed pregnant for 15 days. Wow. And that was just late enough to mm -hmm. give my son a chance at life. And that's when I knew I'm quitting everything from my previous life and I'm coming back and I'm helping people learn how to stay pregnant because I do not have superpowers. I am nobody special. There mm -hmm. is something here that is built into our body that is not built into the medical system that can actually help us improve our individual and then ultimately societal pregnancy outcomes. And we need to do more about it. And so that's kind of how I ended up here. Yeah. And that's really remarkable. I mean, really, the moment you present at the hospital, delivery is almost eminent, a three centimeters yep. at that point, And you have a baby that's under 23 weeks. So for those who are listening, that's really under being viable. So I'm sure, as you said, they were preparing you for the worst. How did you know what to do in that moment? Honestly, I think it was instinct at that point. You know, I was very grateful that I had some kind of access and exposure to body work and somatic work, just mm -hmm. little tiny pieces, just based on my own curiosity. It was not built into my training. So I had some of that and that combined with instinct. I was kind of going with, what do I need to do to help myself basically melt into the bed is kind of what I was telling mm -hmm. myself. How do I do that? Now, that's not certainly what I teach my clients anymore because that's really kind of the end of the road here. And what we do mm -hmm. now is so much more preventative. But at that point, I was really just listening to my body and going, what does it need right now? Because it's telling me something, what does it need? And what kind of work did you have to do once you got your child to a successful delivery, although you were still preterm? And I'm sure that there was a lot that happened after that wasn't an easy road. But once you got home and realized that this is what you wanted to do, what kind of work did you have to do to bring that into your clients? It took several years. So as you mentioned, the, the road was long and complicated even after he was born. We had the NICU stay and then there's pretty significant complicated journey mm -hmm. of caring for a micro preemie and a medically complex mm -hmm. child in those early years. And so it took a few years actually but I'd planted the seed. And once life mm -hmm. kind of started easing up a little and we had less and less appointments, kind of went back to that. And I went, did that really happen? Was that right. real? Is there anything to back this up beyond my personal experience? Mm -hmm. So my first stop was actually to, to dive into the research to see, can I find anything that other people have been able to replicate that would explain what just happened? And that's when I uncovered 70 years of research on stress physiology mm -hmm. and pregnancy. And it completely blew my mind. And mm -hmm. so with that validation, I said, okay, I knew that I needed to take this to clients and get back into direct service of some kind. It was not psychotherapy because we're not mm -hmm. actually doing anything to diagnose, assess, or treat. What we are doing is very preventative work. And so I spent a lot of time learning how to teach what I did. Because as you asked, what is it that I do? How did I know to do that? It was instinctual, but how do I teach other people how mm -hmm. to do that? And from there, I really uncovered not only the disconnect that we generally have, not just in the medical field, but generally between mind and body. We can't feel our bodies because we haven't been conditioned to or encouraged to stay connected to our bodies the way that we are as children. 
And so mm. I realized very early on that basic education and basic retraining had to happen. And the more I worked with my clients, the more I realized this is not just chronic stress, but mm -hmm. what we're really looking at is traumatic stress that mm -hmm. is really rampant inside the community of complicated pregnancies or a complicated family building journey in general, mm -hmm. which I could then track back for myself too, tying to fertility trauma, that it doesn't necessarily right. begin with pregnancy complications. We can actually go mm -hmm. farther back and find it there. And so a lot of the training, I went back to the somatic work. I went into sensory motor work. I went into psychoneuroimmunology. And I did a lot of kind of where I had toes dipped in already. I went much deeper and I went, mm -hmm. how does this apply? How does this connect specifically to women's health? How does it connect to pregnancy health? And from there and having worked with so many clients around the world, the program started coming together. There was a lot mm -hmm. of common factors, common patterns that we were seeing, regardless of culture, regardless of history, of these are the foundational things we need to work on. We need to get you back in touch with your body. But what does that mean? How do mm -hmm. we do that in a way that's safe? How do we do that when nothing else has worked for you? Then what do we do in the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? And from there, it all kind of started unfolding through just experience of working with people. Well, I mean, that's really amazing. And I think it's so important because, as you said, we don't understand about the connection with the body. And I think so often we're like ignoring all the little tiny things yeah. as we go. And that's everything in medicine, to be honest. We only yeah. treat things until it's like really bad. Yeah. And definitely when it comes to any type of mental health. You know, I talk to my patients all the time about trying to get help early on from a therapist or from someone who can help them. And most of the time patients will be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'm not like my friend over here who's yes. had five miscarriages. I'm just doing this is my first round of IVF. Yeah. Not understanding the impact is also traumatic. And I wanted you to kind of talk to us a little about what does fertility trauma mean? Yeah. I think I'll start with something that you just said, which is mm -hmm. One of the biggest shifts I made in my career in doing this is moving away from the mental health field. So I no mm -hmm. longer practice psychotherapy and I no longer talk about trauma as a mental health issue because it's not. It's a whole health issue, stress physiology in general, chronic stress, traumatic stress. It's a whole health issue that has mental health components, cardiovascular components, respiratory components, reproductive components. And I think when we frame it like that, it suddenly takes the stigma out of it. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm not dealing with this right. I'm doing something wrong. I'm weak. Why can't right. I? All of that shame starts to go away because now we're looking at it as a systemic concern that we need support around. That makes sense to have support around mm -hmm. because as you just mentioned, it is tied to the experience of going through infertility. And so when we talk about fertility trauma specifically, what we're essentially saying is we'll split the phrase up into two. Trauma being the experience of being in a threatening situation where you experienced a threat of any kind that is not determined by what it says on paper or anything like that. It is what your brain and your body identified as a threat. And then being unable to come out of that into safety for any number of reasons. That's what traumatic stress is. It's stored survival stress that's frozen and stuck in the body. Fertility trauma then is when that event happens on the journey to trying to conceive. 
And that means that that can happen even if you're trying naturally. That can happen if you are doing IVF, if you are going through adoption, if you are going through a surrogacy journey. The events or those details don't actually matter. It is that as you are going through it, something has felt threatening and you are unable for any reason to come back out into safety. Mm -hmm. And is it possible that you could have people experiencing this different, right? So somebody could have, like you said, they're trying to conceive, not seeking fertility treatment, but they may be experiencing trauma from that. But another person maybe is not experiencing trauma. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you have to be experiencing trauma at any way along the journey. That's right. That's right. It it cannot be defined by the external events. Mm-hmm. It is only defined by the interpretation of threat mm-hmm. by our nervous system. And that's done at a subconscious, unconscious, nonverbal level. So it's not mm-hmm. like we're choosing it. It's not like we ever had a right. choice in the matter. It's for a variety of reasons it was experienced um, mm-hmm. as threatening. Another way that I like talking about it is it's when something that's too much happens too quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's another way where we talk about how something can feel threatening. When you describe it to somebody else, it doesn't sound like it should be threatening or plenty of people who've been through it and they didn't experience it as threatening. But for your body, it was too much too quickly. And that could be enough for us to go back, to go into that state of activation, mm-hmm. of survival and being unable to come back out into safety. And it can be dependent upon what your provider even Right. So I had an example of someone recently that had a prior traumatic procedure. And then now that has made it so that each subsequent just basic pelvic exam is now like a traumatic experience for her. Yep, absolutely. And that's why it's so important to talk about trauma, not as a mental health issue, but a whole health issue, because it is showing up in different ways. And oftentimes what we find is even after something, let's say the fertility trauma happens somewhere along the IVF journey, then Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop because IVF is over. It doesn't Mm -hmm. stop because you're pregnant or because baby has come home. It's going to come out in different ways in your body because it is stored survival stress that has still had nowhere to go to be released from the body. It's still stuck there. And so it will show up in different ways. We see pelvic floor dysfunction as one of them. We see a hypertonic pelvic floor, especially very common for people who've experienced any kind of reproductive trauma, birth trauma, things like that. Mm-hmm. Super, super common in those ways. But there's so many other ways that it can show up. And so when we get curious about why is my body doing all these things? How is it that all of a sudden I have three new diagnoses and all these other things that are wrong? That's where my head goes to. Can we zoom back and see, could traumatic stress be the common factor here? And can the trauma come from, let's say, early childhood experience and then sort of come up in a fertility trauma? Yep, absolutely it can. It can. If we have experienced something in childhood, that's already kind of raised the baseline a little bit. and. We're assuming somebody's gotten, say, decent amount of support. We won't say ideal and we won't say none. So somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle, decent amount of support. Baseline's already raised. So if you think about the capacity of the body, we're already filling up that tank a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then you go into something, anything, in this case, we're talking about fertility, trying to conceive in any way, especially if it triggers a somatic memory of what you have been through, that is going to pile into that tank very quickly. 
And that can absolutely take us over the edge into experiencing whatever that moment was as traumatic. And I wonder even if, say, we have childhood trauma, if you can even get some of that, if you have a, a mother, let's say, who experienced trauma, can some of her experience come onto you as a child and then roll into your future experiences as well? Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. And that's one of the things I uncovered in mm -hmm. doing this work and starting this work is there's a lot, even more research than in pregnancy, mm -hmm. there is much more research on the impact of neonatal, fetal, and childhood development when mm -hmm. they were in the womb of a person who was experiencing elevated stress. And right. it changes the genetic makeup. Sometimes it puts us mm -hmm. at risk for a significant number of health complications that show up anywhere in the body. There's a lot of research that is showing the impact of that. And so when we're doing trauma-related work to have a healthy pregnancy, it's not just for ourselves. It is actually mm -hmm. to then pass on the opposite, is to pass on uh, healing, I guess is, is a way to say it. You can, if we can pass on generational trauma, we can pass on generational healing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really important because it's also important, as you mentioned earlier, we're not talking just about, you said you've changed your idea about mental health. You know, we're talking about an epigenetic change now exactly. that you can't reverse. So we need to figure out how we can handle it. What are some of the signs that you might be dealing with uh, fertility trauma or trauma? There are so many, which I realize is a mm -hmm. <laughs> an unsatisfying answer, but I'll give you some examples. I start with a question usually, which is, did it start, the concerning thing that's kind of in the back of your head going, is this trauma? Did it start after a moment that felt threatening to you, mm -hmm. right? Did it start after a moment that you could think, ooh, maybe that was traumatic, possibly, maybe, right? And that thing, quote unquote thing, can be anything. It can be anxiety-type symptoms, depressive-type symptoms. It can be asthma flare-ups, new autoimmune disease diagnoses, heart palpitations, hypertension, digestive issues. I mean, there's so many different things. But the question that I always start with my clients is, when did this change happen in relation to what happened to you? Mm -hmm. And if it's afterwards, usually that's a good sign that it's tied to the traumatic stress that you're still holding on to in your body. Another way that I see it showing up is if there are multiple of those things, most of the clients that I work with come back to me. So they've already experienced late-term loss or preterm delivery, and they're coming to me for their next pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And they're like, in between that, I've developed insomnia and hypertension and digestive issues and this and that and this and that. And I'm seeing all these 75 different people, and nobody can figure out what's going on. And that's mm -hmm. usually a good sign as well. When there's so many different things happening, there's some kind of common factor we're not seeing yet. Mm -hmm. Usually it's tied to stress physiology. Generally speaking, traumatic stress is going to show up as either elevated things. So elevated heart rate, elevated blood pressure, this feeling of go, 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 trying to be really perfect, trying to get everything right, feeling overwhelmed, you know, that, that elevation. Or it's going to feel like a complete depression. I don't mean clinical depression, though it sometimes right. looks that way. But everything slows. And we just kind of talk slower and we think slower. And our 
digestive health kind of gut motility slows down and our heart rate's really low. And sometimes our breathing is really low and slow, but not in the like careful, happy, supportive kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, everything just kind of, I'm tired all the time. Things feel full, like foggy, fuzzy. So it's kind of one of those two. Usually Mm -hmm. it'll fall into one of those two buckets. And so if someone presents to conventional medicine or general therapists, they're going to be most likely in this situation here labeled as probably anxious or labeled as depressed. Yep. Right? Yep. And then no one's dealing with the unresolved trauma. Mm -mm. What happens when we're here kind of Band-Aid fixing the depression, quote unquote, or the anxiety, but we're not dealing with the unresolved trauma? What happens with that? Well, two things. The person living with that is dealing with the cumulative effect of stored survival stress, which will result in more and more health complications. There's no way around that. And if it's showing up right now as, say, anxious symptoms or hypertension, that list is going to get longer as we go on. And the second piece, which I think is probably even worse, is that the person is left feeling like this is their destiny. This Mm -hmm. is the best it's going to get. There's nothing better than this. And I'm stuck in this body that feels like it's constantly breaking. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably is worse than anything else because then we stop looking for help because we've Mm -hmm. talked to so many people and you have your cardiologist and you've got your endocrinologist and you've got your this person and that person. And they're all working in their own silos trying to fix Mm -hmm. each of these things when truly a trauma-informed approach means we're not fixing anything. Because nothing is broken. Your body is supposed to be doing these things given the state of your physiology in this moment. Mm -hmm. And when we can change that, suddenly we are no longer going in to fix anything that's broken, but we are now supporting your body to finish the cycle that it couldn't finish at the moment that this happened. And so I think that's why this work is so important to me because it is so much more empowering than the traditional medical approach of fix it, fix it, fix it. So this is probably a difficult question, but I wonder if it's possible that, you know, I don't know if you have any evidence for it, but is it possible that the reason why we see higher risks of complications in those who deal with infertility related to this or those who've had subsequent you know, preterm labor, we just see preterm labor again, preterm labor again. And they're just labeled with you're someone who has preterm labor and the cycle continues and it never ends until they stop having pregnancies. Yes, yes, yes. I completely agree with that. And there is some evidence to support that because one of the uh, hallmarks of living with stored survival stress is an increase in systemic inflammation. And what do we see Mm -hmm. as the common factor of many of these pregnancy complications is increased inflammation in the body. And so I do believe that this plays a role absolutely in increasing the risk of because we know that when we can bring that inflammation down, the inflammation that is tied to the state of the nervous system, the state of the body, in addition to all the other things we can do to bring inflammation down, we do see a reduction in preterm births and significant pregnancy complications that have inflammation as a risk factor for it. I don't want to simplify it and say, okay, Mm -hmm. now you do this work and that means you're never going to have preterm labor, but, you know, potentially it may help to reduce your risk. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yes, absolutely. 
I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions and about trauma and fertility trauma. What are some of the common misconceptions you see with that? I think one of them that we talked about earlier is that trauma is a mental health issue. It's taught in schools that way, in the clinical programs, and it's there everywhere in pop psychology. There's this idea that trauma is a mental health thing. And therefore, when we have providers who are doing, quote unquote, physical health, we have your GPs, your OBs, your cardiologists, all of that, when they think, oh, it might be stress-related, whether it's chronic or traumatic, it doesn't matter, I'm going to send you to a mental health provider. And there's Mm -hmm. no connection between the two. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important to dismantle very quickly because it's really doing a disservice to people everywhere. I think another misconception that we see frequently about trauma is that we can, because it's a mental health issue, I think that's where it's stemmed uh, and rooted from, is then I just have to change the way I think. And if I can change the way I think, Mm-hmm. I'll feel better. And if your listeners have heard anything <laughs> that I've been saying over and over, it's that it's a whole health issue, which means that the mm-hmm. traumatic stress is actually trapped inside the body, especially when it's tied to something like fertility trauma, where the experience at the time of the threat is a very physical experience. This is something that I say about pregnancy and birth trauma as well. Mm-hmm. Pregnancy and birth are some of the most physically demanding experiences of our lives when our body is so involved and really is kind of the leading captain, so to speak, of how things progress, that in and of itself is evidence that it's not sitting in our heads. And in fact, we go a little bit deeper and we know that in moments of survival and when we're stuck and trapped in that survival state, our blood flow pattern changes in our brain so that actually higher level thinking is not possible. And it's Mm -hmm. not supported. Now, as humans, we can override these natural tendencies and try, but it exerts a lot of energy to do that. But all that to say is we can't think ourselves out of trauma because we didn't think ourselves into it. It's stored in the body, and therefore the release has to come first from the body. And then we bring in the cognitive aspects much, much, much later. Okay. And we touched a little bit earlier about the idea that there's this comparison that goes on oftentimes. You see that, well, I'm somebody who I did have one cycle of IVF that didn't work out, but here's my friend over here. She suffered from four pregnancy losses. I can't have trauma because I didn't go through that. Definitely what she went through is probably dramatic, but not my situation. And I wanted to touch a little bit more on that, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those instances where if you go back to what we talked about earlier, it has nothing to do with the actual event. It is not what we see, I like to call it as what we would write on paper for what happened, because the traumatic event was not in what happened, it was what happened to you. And that is very, very individualized. If you take an example, it's a really small example, but if you and I are walking down the street and we are just having a nice conversation and then we hear a dog barking from behind a fence, I might jump out of my skin and you might just turn and be like, oh, there's a dog. Sounds kind of like my dog. We are going to have two completely different responses because how Mm -hmm. it was interpreted by each of our bodies was completely different. And that's why 
the event itself cannot ever determine or define what was traumatic, which I think is really important for providers to know, is you can have a client or a patient who conceived naturally with no complications and still experience fertility trauma. You can have a patient who delivered full term right on the due date, everything was just picture perfect, and still have experienced birth trauma because it's not mm -hmm. the event, is what was happening in her body at that time that was encoded as a threat that she could not release for any number of mm -hmm. reasons. That's what we mean with trauma, which is why we can't compare. There is no comparison. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important to highlight because that's something that I see a lot. And I think sometimes people are afraid or don't want to say that maybe their situation is upsetting or was a traumatic event for them because they try to compare it to something else, that there's no way it could. So I think it's really important to highlight that. And I think one of the other things that, you know, I'm imagining here as we're speaking about this is just how the medical system is not conducive to healing at all. I imagine in the labor room, there's so much going on. There's so many things that are stress provoking. And even as a provider myself, going through pregnancy and delivery, you are in a situation where you're so vulnerable. And I think that's one of the things that we take for granted sometimes as providers is having that understanding that patients are really vulnerable. Lots of times they're not open to asking questions, to telling you their true feelings. And so, it, you know, really, it makes me sad sometimes to see how the medical system really is a disservice to a lot of people to really allowing them to open up and, and tell us things or show us things. But even myself as a doctor, I'll have bad experience with, with a doctor or bad experience in the hospital. And yet I won't say anything because I'm now the patient and all my medical knowledge is gone and I'm the vulnerable patient and I just feel exposed and I'm not going to say anything. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. You're so right. And to be honest, the last couple of years, I have had the most medical providers as private clients than I've ever had since I started doing this work for that very reason is, and I think it's tied probably to how this, the medical system, how much pressure it's under because of the pandemic is even people who are trained in the system, when they come in for fertility support, pregnancy, they feel the same way, exactly as you described of, I don't know what to say. I don't know what's okay to ask. I don't know if mm -hmm. I should speak up. And that, I think, really speaks to how visceral this experience is. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. It doesn't matter how much training or how much we know cognitively, because this is all happening outside of conscious awareness, outside of the cognitive resources that we may have otherwise, those don't exist in a situation where we feel like there's some kind of a threat to us. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that was even heightened, as you said, in the pandemic, because so many women were without a partner, mm -hmm. without a friend, without a companion or anyone yes. to really advocate for them, which honestly, I can't even imagine how that would be as a patient going through all of that. I really struggle with that as a provider, just seeing so many patients go through things on their own because Definitely. it's so important to have someone to advocate for you when you don't feel okay to speak up yourself. Agreed. Absolutely agree. I wanted to also ask you a little bit about how this impacts relationships because we know that 
fertility and pregnancy complications impact relationships and how does trauma weave into this? Yeah. When we are living with stored survival stress, when we are frozen or stuck in that um, with the traumatic stress in our bodies and we haven't had the ability or the time or the knowledge to release it, we are in a body whose only job is to keep us alive. And when we're in that state, we actually can't benefit from close, safe other relationships. We're not in a body that can actually take in the calmness, the safety of others to help us come out of that. Mm -hmm. There is a very specific kind of pattern that our body goes through to come out of survival into safety, at which point we can really benefit. But until we get there, no matter how much loving support we have around us, it's like we've got this shield around us almost. Mm -hmm. And we could tell people are trying and we want it. And it's just not quite coming through. And that is because of the state that our body is in at that time. Now, the way that that often presents I see in my client work is that there's maybe a, a feeling of distance between partners. There is a sense of you're not seeing me. I don't think you're hearing what I'm saying. And this feeling of uh, many opportunities of missed connection or quote unquote missed connections. But it's not missed because the body's just not in a place to be able to receive it, even if it's happening. Mm -hmm. And if you have both partners in that state, it kind of spirals and kind of mm -hmm. builds on each other. So you now have this almost tornado of intensity of survival where you both are just in this state of we've just got to stay alive is mm -hmm. essentially what both of your bodies are doing. Right. And so obviously it's important for both partners then in that situation to have treatment, um, especially like you said, your partner who's not going through the treatment may also be dealing with trauma too. Yep. Yep. So it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that as a woman, you're going through most of the treatment and a lot of the physical things, but your partner may still also have some trauma as well. Yeah. Now we're talking a lot about all of this. Where can someone start and what kind of things can they be doing to move in the right direction of healing? Yeah. The very first thing is to acknowledge it for yourself that what you went through was stored and encoded as trauma. And that sounds really light and fluffy. And you're like, a lot of people are like, oh, OK, sure. But what's next? And mm -hmm. I really want to highlight that this really is where it begins. We can't mm -hmm. skip this step. You've got to really embody for yourself without judgment, without shame, without any of those disclaimers that we put on ourselves about what other people have been through or I should mm -hmm. have been able to or any of those things to completely and wholly sit with the reality. I experienced fertility trauma. That IVF experience was traumatic. That pregnancy was traumatic. Doesn't matter what the outcome was. Doesn't matter if you got pregnant or not. It doesn't matter if you delivered a healthy baby or not. None of those things are qualifiers for that. Both can be true at the same time. I am so glad that I'm pregnant and that cycle mm -hmm. was traumatic. 
Mm-hmm. And I start there because that's actually a lot harder to do than we typically think and what it sounds mm-hmm. like because we're so used to pushing. It's fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And we've really to actually do deep healing work. It's got to start with sitting with that discomfort. I'm pregnant or I'm not. I've started fertility treatment or I haven't, whatever your reality is. And I experience fertility trauma and I can hold that without judgment. It really starts there. It has to begin there. And once you can do that, that's when you start to see the open door of how you need to start turning into your body and go deeper and deeper and deeper. When we can't do that, and when we kind of gloss over this, it's really just repeating the trauma patterns of staying disconnected from our bodies, staying Mm -hmm. focused on the external, looking outside for answers, looking outside for what's going to fix me instead of going inside and really changing the question to how does what's happening in my body make sense given what I've been through. And is it possible that people are, quote unquote, trying to heal, but using other means that are not appropriate. So I'm going to relax by shopping. I'm going to relax by some people might be drinking or I'm going to be overeating or going to be whatever, fill in the blank of whatever habit now has come as a comfort to try to help. When I ask patients, you know, tell me what you do for stress reduction the answer is almost always, I watch TV, I shop, those kind of basic things, which really don't give a true stress reduction. Yes, yes, exactly. Those things, and I'll even add any type of cognitive tools, shopping, Mm -hmm. Netflix binges, but also affirmations and changing your thinking patterns and Mm -hmm. all of those things. All of them do the opposite of what is required for healing, which is it takes Mm -hmm. you out of your body and focused on something else. Yeah. You're focused Mm -hmm. on the shopping. You're focused on the TV show. You're focused on your Mm -hmm. thoughts. What is required for healing in the first stages is to go into the body, which we often avoid because it feels overwhelming. It sounds Mm -hmm. scary. I don't know how to do it. And I get all that. It's all very true, especially when we've been disconnected. And what I like to say to my clients all the time is you're disconnected for a reason. At the time of the trauma, you're supposed to be disconnected. You shouldn't be feeling your body. That is a protective mechanism that's right. built into our biology. Now we just have to get you back there, but we have to do it in a way that feels safe and comfortable and extremely slow. But that's mm-hmm. not what we talk about because that's not easy and simple to explain. And so the easier thing to do, I think, is for us to stay distracted. And so I like mm-hmm. to distinguish between, so I think we throw the word healing around a lot and it, it's not mm-hmm. what it actually means. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to ask the question, are you trying to heal or are you trying to soothe? Because yeah. in those moments when you're like, I just need a distraction, which is okay. The work should never be about constant healing and all the time, every second of every day. Mm -hmm. That's not how that works either. Oh, my gosh, no. There are moments where you're going to want to watch TV and just check Mm -hmm. out. Absolutely. But then know that what you're doing is you are soothing. Mm -hmm. That the discomfort, the sensations that you're becoming aware of, we're just trying to make those more palatable. You're soothing yourself. And when you're ready for healing, 
that's going to look entirely differently. But both of them absolutely have a place and a role in in our life, for sure. And I think there's a lot more of soothing type of behaviors now that we have access to phone at our fingertips. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people turn to the phone and turn to social media just to get distracted all the time from really what's going on. And so I find myself doing that when I get nervous about something. I tend to look at my phone and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just mindlessly scrolling here. I'm trying to avoid whatever is going on in my mind. And I think social media has its place, but social media can be a landmine for those who are dealing with fertility trauma or dealing with infertility in general. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I actually just did an interview on this very topic. Social media is fantastic in that there's so many accounts that you can follow for education and information, motivation, inspiration. It's great until it's not. And so much of that is dependent, again, on the state of your body when you are consuming that information. Some Mm -hmm. days when you are in a state where you have a bit more capacity, certain educational content may be okay. And you've got the capacity to hold it and and read it and see it. And there are going to be other days where your capacity is much, much lower for a wide number of reasons. And even something as simple as an educational post can be triggering to you. That's Mm -hmm. not to say at all about any of the other more inflammatory posts that are out there, the incorrect information and any of that. That's all a whole other mess that's out on social media. But for our purposes for today... What came to mind when you asked that is what we have control over is our behavior on social media. And one of the things that affects that is what state is my body in and what is my purpose for scrolling right now? Like we just talked about, is it distraction? If you're really going to do it for distraction, you choose that. Choose things that are not related to that topic. Scroll on like ice cream sites or something and look at beautiful pictures of ice cream, something like that. And also ask yourself, if you are looking for information about your fertility journey, what state is my body in and how much capacity do I have to actually take in this information? Your head's Mm -hmm. going to have a very different answer than your body. Our head wants to believe we can take it all in. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Your body is telling you whether that's actually true or not. And I would trust that first. Yeah. And I know now there's a large infertility community. There's a lot of people who share their personal stories, but there's potential pitfalls of sharing your story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The main thing that I see is people sharing their stories too soon. And what I mean by that, by too soon, is in the physiological pattern that we have to follow to get to healing, to come out of survival into safety, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, what we turn to is to tell our story in order to connect. We want that connection, just like we talked about with relationships Mm -hmm. earlier. We really want that connection. We want to be seen. We want to be validated. What we went through oftentimes happened behind closed doors, in isolation. Really, a lot of people don't understand it. And we want to be Mm -hmm. validated for that. And we want people to see us, understandably so. There's nothing wrong with that. And We often share those stories before our bodies are in the state to be able to receive that validation. And so what Mm -hmm. happens are two things is we're overriding the physiological setup of our bodies to tell a story when we're not able to actually benefit from the receipt of the support from others. 
And the other thing is it keeps us out of our bodies again. And so what we think we're doing is healing by telling the story when in fact we're staying disconnected and actually trying to skip over many steps that often happen or need to happen before that in order to really benefit from being able to share and then receive the support that we're looking for. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not at all saying don't share your story, but I'm Mm -hmm. saying be really mindful of what you're going for and what you're looking for and Mm -hmm. let your body lead. There is this, I can't remember the phrase now, what they call it, but this pull to be very vulnerable on social media and share Mm -hmm. all the things. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to if that's not your style, if that's not what you need, and if that's not the state that your body's in. And I think that's Mm -hmm. most important because oftentimes retelling the story can set you up for re-traumatization if it's not Mm -hmm. done from a body that is ready for that. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think, as you said, there's this pull to really be more vulnerable and to share and to have lots of followers and lots of likes and all of that. And we're not taking into account what's going on with you as much. And so being mindful, I think, is it's really important. I also want to talk to you a little bit about triggers. So we know social media, as we talked about, is a landmine for triggers, but triggers can come from anywhere, really. It doesn't even have to be, it could be just you walking in the store and you see something like you end up in the pregnancy test aisle or some family member comes over and they always comment about, are you pregnant yet? Or what's going on? How does someone deal with triggers who's going through trauma? The simple answer, I think, is soothe first, heal later. So in the moment, especially if it's triggered by somebody else and there's someone else involved in the conversation, especially if it's in person, right? It's not a text that you can just answer later. Soothe first. Do what you need to get through that situation. And then you want to do the deeper kind of restorative work afterwards. I am definitely of the mindset that we take the reality of the capacity of your body And if your capacity is really full, avoidance is your best friend. It is okay to Mm -hmm. avoid known triggers, especially when you're early in the work of releasing traumatic stress. It is absolutely okay to say no to baby showers, to have your partner check the mail so you don't have to see any kind of announcements or invitations. All of that is totally okay. I'm truly of the mindset, let your body lead what you Mm -hmm. can take. And then the flip side of that is triggers are everywhere. And I am several years out from this. And still, there are times when it happens, even though I do this professionally. The Mm -hmm. goal is not to never be triggered. So let's also change the expectation. Right. The goal is it's okay to be triggered. How quickly can I come out of that? And not by distracting, but how quickly can I support my body to no longer experience that thing as threatening? And that's really what yeah. the, the beauty of the work is. Yeah, I like that. That's really important. Thank you. You talk a lot about nervous system regulation in your work. And obviously, I know we could really go on and on. But if you can give us kind of a brief overview of what does that mean and why is it important? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what nervous system regulation is not first. It is not calming down. That is not what we mean by that. And I think I want to highlight that because that's often mistaken on social media when you're looking around everywhere. Nervous system regulation is basically restoring the health of the nervous system, which is body system 
inside of all of us so that it sends signals that are appropriate and and connected to and in line with what is happening in our environment and inside our bodies. Meaning the alarms aren't ringing all the time and they're also not never ringing. They're ringing when there's actually a threat. And then we are able to support all body systems to function in their restorative repair modes when there's no threat happening. That's what nervous system regulation is about, which means what we do in nervous system regulation work is not to calm you down. It's to restore flexibility to the nervous Mm -hmm. system. That's what that work is. And the reason that's important is because that system, the nervous system, is the only body system that touches all other body systems, meaning the state of that nervous system impacts how all other body systems function. So in the work I do, that specifically shows up in how the endocrine system is impacted and how the immune system is impacted, which we talked about earlier, affects fertility as well as pregnancy health. And so if you have hormone issues, if you've got inflammation, if you've got autoimmune disease, if you've got health conditions of any kind where either inflammation or hormone imbalances are underlying that, and you've experienced something traumatic before, we've got to go even further back and we've got to look at the state and the health of your nervous system. Where can we restore that flexibility to allow the endocrine system and the immune system and then all other body systems, of course, Mm -hmm. to do what they know how to do in the healthiest way possible? That's really important. And all the other systems, we know that people will end up having issues with their GI tract, right? So more likely to have issues with digestion and all of that kind of comes into play. And that's where we're going to end up with uh, elevated blood pressure and tachycardia and all of those things. So that's all part of that. So I really like that. Honestly, I could go on and on and hear you go over those things, but I want to make sure I get to one thing that I want to ask you because you did mention that you no longer really do traditional therapy. So this might be a little bit controversial, but what's the role of traditional therapy now that you don't use it? Is there a role for traditional therapy? I think there is, yes. Mm-hmm. I think it is beautifully appropriate and very successful in bodies that are functioning in their safe physiological state, where Mm -hmm. we have access to our cognitive resources to be able to challenge thinking, to be able Mm -hmm. to appraise situations differently, to be able to navigate relationships in a different way. I think marriage counseling therapy in that way is absolutely beautiful in bodies when there are two people who are working in their safe physiological state. I think it's fantastic. I think there are a lot of things like psychotherapy that are really beautifully beneficial when they are used at the right time when our bodies can actually benefit from them. Okay. So it's possible that if somebody who's maybe needs to do the work on the trauma, then once they've worked through it, then they may be able to benefit at that point from talk therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's great. And I often have clients who are doing both because therapy Mm -hmm. is often the first line of resources we reach out to. And then when they realize it's not helping enough, then they come to Mm -hmm. me and then they're working with both of us together. And it's Mm -hmm. completely different work, but it facilitates each of them. And once our work is complete, they really Mm -hmm. can benefit even more deeply with the work they've been already doing with their therapist who they have a wonderful relationship with for some time. If someone is doing the kind of work that you're doing, how long does it take to start to see some improvements in some of the symptoms that they're experiencing? And it's a hard question, but 
You know, is it something that will take months and months to work through? Of course, it depends on situations, but is it possible that people may see some improvements within a shorter amount of time or what happens? Yes. I am of the mindset, and this is truly inspired by my own personal experience, that you've been through enough already, the, the healing and recovery process should not be nearly as painful or take nearly as long. And I say that with a giant asterisk because healing work is lifelong work. It is mm-hmm, like committing yeah. to take a shower. You can skip a couple days and that's fine, but you've got to get back to it and it's going to be every day for the rest of your life. But that said, it's important to me that we experience wins very quickly. And if we do the work that is actually led by your body my clients will see changes to their bodies within somewhere between three to six weeks initially. And then it just builds and builds and builds from there. So we have repeat wins over and over and over until mm-hmm. um, I would say it takes for my non-pregnant clients, it'll take somewhere between four to six months to have their first experience of coming out of survival into safety. They will go back. And that's where the continuous practice is required for the rest of our life. For my pregnant clients, we're able to get there maybe a little bit sooner, like three, four months. But then there's a very different practice that has to happen to support pregnancy because of the changing physiology. So I don't know if that answers your question. But yes, you can have quick wins. And also it's a lifelong practice. Yeah, I think that's really important to know that you can have quick wins because, as you mentioned, people want to feel hopeful that things can, they can see some improvements quicker because sometimes therapy gives us idea that, oh, we're going to spend forever trying to get to some improvement. Yes. I'll have you talk about how people can work with you, but how does someone know who to turn to to help them with this type of work? Are there other providers out there that you know of or any type of way to search for people who are doing this type of work? There's nobody that I've found that does this type of work inside of pregnancy mm-hmm. specifically. Mm, so got it. Okay. that would be me. <laughs> okay. But if you wanted just generally somatic work that's not necessarily mm-hmm. tied to pregnancy health, you want to look for a somatic practitioner. Some of them okay. might call themselves somatic Practitioners, somatic coaches, so somatic mm-hmm. therapists, somatic experiencing influences some of my work. It's not all of it, but mm-hmm. some of it. They have a whole directory on their website of people who are trained in the somatic experiencing modality primarily. You want to go for somebody who is body-based. I think trauma-informed yoga, they need to be specifically trained in that and have a specific certification for that. Mm-hmm. That could be a good place to start as well. Those are kind of the more general supports that you could possibly look for. Yeah, thank you. Well, Mm -hmm. how can listeners connect with you or learn more about your work or work with you? Yeah, so everything is linked on my website, which is my full name.com, barijatdeshpande.com. And from there, you can grab my book, Pregnancy Brain, which doesn't talk about trauma specifically. It's more generally stress physiology and pregnancy. And then you can connect with me on Instagram. I'm at healthy.highriskpregnancy. And then if you're new to my work, I think. Listen to my podcast, read the book, and then join me in the Trauma-Informed Women's Health Inner Circle where we talk a lot about this concept and really reframing and understanding your body in a different way. And then if you're ready to work with me one-on-one, there's a a page on my website, work with me one-on-one, and you can send me your information and we'll tell you in which capacity would be the best for me to reach out to you and how we can work together. Okay, great. Thank you. I really highly recommend your podcast, Delivering Miracles. So good. It's really good. So many good episodes on there. And she has lots of episodes. So really take a listen to that. And I always ask 
my guests how they cultivate joy in their life because I think so often those who are on the fertility journey kind of skip over that and don't Mm -hmm. look at ways that we can cultivate joy on a daily basis, even the small things. What kind of things do you do? Yeah, I love this question. Lately, I have been listening to podcasts. I've kind of been obsessed with inside the writer's room kind of podcasts behind the scenes of TV shows that I really enjoy. And I'll pop my earbuds in and listen to those and go for a really long walk in the sunshine. And I just love that. And then I've been taking vocal lessons for about a year and a half now, gotten back into that. So singing just truly brings me so much joy inside the house. Oh, that's nice. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here. Honestly, your work is really eye-opening for me. I hope to really be able to work with you in the future in more professional capacity because I think the work you're doing is so important. And I wish that this kind of stuff was part of the training for physicians and other practitioners to be able to know how to manage patients because we see so many patients who are probably struggling with all of the things that we talked about and not even realizing it. And I honestly, I think about it so often now because now I, I try to be a little bit more aware these days, especially since my integrative medicine training. But sometimes I cringe about, was I ever not aware of what was going on with my patients? Because we're so focused on just trying to do the physical stuff that we're completely ignoring what's going on with their mental health. And I know we talked about this not being mental health, but just really looking at the mind-body connection. I really was never aware of it. And so I I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for inviting me on and, and chatting with me about all of this. Thank you. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.